Welcome to Behind the DM Screen for March of 2023. We are three DMs talking about our games and helping each other out. I am Jeff Greiner, and with me as usual, as always, is Mike Shea. Hello. And Sam Dillon. Hola. Como estas? Ooh. Multilingual. That's pretty much all I can say in Spanish anymore, so. Well. I don't want to mislead anybody. (laughs) Just trying to be friendly. Okay. Hello to all of our viewers, whether you speak English or not. Perfect. And we are playing with all kinds of new technology this time around. Uh, We are streaming again for the first time in months uh, using different software. And there's a few people in there hanging out with us. Um, So you might get to hear us interacting with the chat and the the people streaming. Uh, I'm also using an updated version of my recording software. So hopefully the audio sounds good because it didn't sound good in the last episode I recorded, which was our surprise round for, uh, uh, was it, Keys of the Golden Vault. So... Um, so yeah, if not, then know that there's a technology issue and here we are, but this is behind the DM screen and we just do things off the cuff here anyway. Um, so we're going to talk about our games and we're going to start with my good friend, Mike. Oh, yay. So Mike, you have 15 minutes on the clock to ignore. Sure. And your time starts now. All right. Uh, I am running three campaigns. Uh, I am running a Light of Xaraxxus uh, Spelljammer campaign every other Saturday. I am running Empire of the Ghouls uh, every Wednesday. And I'm running... Is the the Spelljammer one, is that the adventure that comes in the box set? Yes. Light of Xaraxxus is the one that comes in the box set. Yeah. It's the the one-third book. And I am running... So Empire of the Ghouls on Wednesday and um, Scarlet Citadel on Sundays mm-hmm. uh, on my my Sunday show I talk all about Scarlet Citadel so I'll save everybody hearing about that uh, and you know I could talk about Light of Xeraxis that'd be I mean it would be kind of interesting to talk about that but um, uh, the, the big one I'm running is my Empire of the Ghouls game that's the one you've talked uh, about in more depth in the past even. yeah and I've been talking about Empire of the Ghouls so far so we'll just stick to that uh, so for, for continuity's sake yeah. so uh, in my Empire of the Ghouls game we are finally I think it was like it was like four months or something that we played through chapter two, like chapter two took forever and it was fine. Like we enjoyed it. Everybody had a, everybody had a good time. Everybody kind of, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody felt like, Oh man, I'm just so tired of this. It's a kind of a big, like your princess is another castle sort of chapter where, you know, you, you, you get a relatively loose quest to go find an artifact. And then every step of the way to go get the artifact is there's like seven times where they're like, oh, sorry, it's not here. But if you go to this other group, they'll totally have it. And in the meantime, you're traveling like 1400 miles across the north, the, you know, the northern, the northern lands. Uh, I tightened it up a lot. I, I, I brought a lot of the NPCs together in different spots and, um, you know, c- kind of made it clear that they, that it wasn't quite so, you know, dangling the MacGuffin out in front of them too long. They, they knew that the quest is going to be long and nobody, nobody, I didn't, I don't think anybody had a problem with it. Um, but they finally finished chapter two and the, the end was a great big fun zinger of a infiltration of a big castle that's o- overtaken by these uh, knights and conscripts and vampires and ghouls 
who are experimenting on people they've captured to try to turn them into dark hole. And it was really fun situate my, my favorite kind of D and D game of a real good situation based D and D game, almost like a big heist where here's the situation. Here's all the people that are there. Here's what they're doing. And you have a job to do. And however that plays out is however it plays out. And in some cases it's really easy. Like taking out guards is not a problem. And in some cases, when you kick in the door to the main room and find that it's totally filled with villains that are totally not challenge rating appropriate, that you, you, you're, you're, you're ready to go. You're ready to go deal with that. So they finished that. They went back North. They got the main MacGuffin, which is nice. It's an actual magic item that has real good magic item powers that the character that has it is using it regularly, which is cool. And, uh, they then made their way North across the, the, I forget the name of the strait, but there's like a big water, you know, big, big pile of water to the North. They cross that into the Northlands, which is very much like, um, yeah, very Norse based. Like all the gods up there are your your Thors and your Lokis and your, you know, your Wotan One Eye and and everybody else. And um, they were hunting down uh, dwarven flesh cultists and rescuing people from them. Got involved with some dwar a, a different set of dwarves that are kind of operating in a different environment completely from this place called Wolfheim. Uh, and one of the characters turn gave one of the gave the leader of the group of Wolfheim, the ability to turn themselves into werewolves. <laughs> and so they all started doing it. He taught everybody else. And then everyone's running around as werewolves having a good time. So they're like, wow, you kind of changed the entire culture of this group who kind of identified themselves with wolves and actually made them wolves. So that was kind of fun. Um, they then made their way. Uh, a, a, there's another sort of uh, a fjord that they crossed in my game this past Wednesday. And uh, they're on their way to a city called uh, Holdramos. And the really fun bit of this is the dwarves were like, oh, you have to cross. um, Oh, what's the name of the place? I'm going to have to look it up. But you have to cross this like swamp, this swamp place. And it's Grella's Glen. It's called Grella's Glen. And the dwarves were like, you know, oh, yeah, you'll cross Grella's. You know, when you cross Grella's Glen, which is really hard to say you'll find the, the hunting trails of the Huldra and follow the hunting trails and you get to Huldra Mose and they'll know how to go to this midnight temple that you're trying to get to to stop this terrible ritual, which is a, a, a blood marriage between the ghouls and the vampires. And you want to stop it from happening uh, because it'll, it'll kind of break a, you know, it could, it could put a strain on the alliance between these two groups and it could discredit the Red Sisters who are the ones officiating the wedding, which is a slight change to the, slight change to the adventure. And they made their way across. So they went to Grella's Glen and it's this crazy swamp. And they found this place where a bunch of people had been charred, not by fire, but by acid. They were all burned and like stuck in place. And they looked and they said, well, these are the people that are charred and burned are cultists of Chernabog who are trying to conduct some kind of terrible ritual here. And something stopped them. And there's something that stopped them burn them all in place and like all the trees in the area are likewise burned not by fire but like they're melted from 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 acid and they're like wow that's weird and they 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 believed that the chernabog cultists something went wrong with the chernabog cultists and whatever they brought in did this to them or something else but then there's this weird hunter guy that's like you know trying to track them this old guy, not, not any kind of threat. And so they follow him. They finally like managed to capture him. And he's like, well, your guys are in trouble. And like, why? It goes, cause you're crossing Grella's Glen and you don't have Grella's permission. 
that's bad, right? And they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll get her permission. And he's like, sure, like, I'll take you right to her. It'll save her a lot of time and it won't be any kind of issue. So they go to this like ramshackle village that's kind of, you know, the, the, a lot of, a fair number of kind of villagers there, very isolated group. And they just sort of eat whatever they can pull out of the swamp. And they're all sort of dressed, not, you know, not in, in a, a bit of squalor, right? They're not, they're not very well behaved. And then this, this woman comes out of a, of a big, you know, kind of hut on the other side of the village. She's got these like blazing black eyes and black hair. And she's like, comes, comes out and she, you know, and the character is like, who's she? Right. And, and, and all the, everybody else drops prone. Like they all drop and put their arms out and they're all just completely supplicating themselves to her. And she's like, you know, who the F are you? Right. And what are you doing in my for it? And they're, you know, why, why would you bring, and he, she looks at the hunters like you found more cultists to Chernabog and you brought them right here. And he's like, I wanted to save you the trouble. Like why go out there and have to hunt them yourself? I thought I'd bring, and they're like, we're not Chernabog cultists. And she's like, I'm not talking, I'm not talking to you yet. I'm talking to him. And so she was very like, you know, condescending to them. And then finally they convinced her, no, we're not Chernabog cultists. We're just, we actually hate Chernabog and we're trying to stop this thing going on with the ghouls and she's like oh really she's like i kind of don't like ghouls either like they're you know i don't like what they're doing up there and i thought they were all to the south the fact that they're on this continent that really bothers me so if you're going after them sure you know i'll i will i'll give you my permission under one certain you know under one condition there is an the, the, the chernabog cultists they committed another atrocity another terrible ritual at an at a tomb to Baco, the elven god of poetry and I want you to go there and undo whatever they did. Like, go find out whatever the curse is that they put on that place and and undo it. And they're like, yeah, that's fair. We'll do that. Um, oh, but before this happened, she likes, they, they were like, you know, talking to her and she looked at them with those crazy black eyes and they all had to make DC 20 wisdom saving throws or, or become filled with fear right and all the other people immediately filled with fear and drop drop prone right again and she would say they're like you know are these like people your followers and she's like no they're all a very democratic collective right you all very democratic collective and like yes we all are very democratic and he's like you're all very free thinkers right individual free yes we all think exactly free and whatever you say grella right and so she's totally like you know she's like i hate cults i hate I hate every time like there's people that are like worshiping some one person unconditionally, right? Everybody. Yes. Grella, we all hate how cults worship only one person. And so, and the you know, players are getting a kick out of this and they're like, what did what, you know, what the hell is she? Right? Like they're just freaking out. They're like, what in the hell is she? Like, is she a God? Like, did we just walk into a village with a God that's walking around and she only has like 30 followers, but they're all right here. What the hell's going on? Right. And so, so she finally said, and, you know, and she gave him a little bag and said, here, there's something, you know, I, I'll let you, you know, you, you do this favor for me and I'll let you cross. And that's a good deal. But, uh, you know, I'll give you something where you could, you could, you know, you would have my, you'd have my gratitude for it. And my gratitude is worth more than a deal that you're going to make with me. I want you to go meet the Queens of Haldermos and they're hiding something, whatever they're hiding. You, I would either want you to put it or a piece of it into this bag. And when you do, it'll show up in this bag, which I'm going to keep. And then I'll know what it is. And they're like, yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, we'll totally do that. Like, I don't trust her at all. Like, you know, I'm not going to do anything like this. So, uh, so they made their way, they made their way out of the village. And, um, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, are now, are now, and they, they made it right to that tomb, uh, of, of Baco. And then some horrifying half plant, half undead kobold press monster, uh, you know, burst out of the tomb and is attacking. And that's where, you know, we ended at that, at that cliffhanger, but I had a really fun time 
running. It was totally kind of on my own. I was, I was, I was actually, uh, you know, I was, I was channeling a movie that I have channeled in my D and D games now for years. I think I wrote multiple published adventures based on it called the ritual, a great movie called the ritual. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's an awesome, awesome horror movie on Netflix. And, um, it, and it has like this village of all of these people that worship this crazy beast in the woods. And I was like, Oh, it's, you know, it's just this awesome, you know, I don't know, such an awesome seed. And, um, and it was, you know, and, my, and Michelle, I was talking to my wife, Michelle about it afterwards. She's like, you know, I kind of like that. I don't know what the hell that it was. <laughs> like there's, she's like, maybe when I'm much higher level, I'll come back and figure out exactly what's going on here. But, you know, in the meantime, I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea what's going on. So, um, yeah, so I'm having a really good time with that. There's the, the, the adventure. You know, there's still a bit of like linear, linear, linear style adventure in this where I'm trying to say like, well, you have multiple paths, right? Like you can cross the sea, you can take a shadow road or you can take a long, you know, you can take a long overland path and, you know, which path do you want to take? And then hopefully I ask them at a time where I can actually come up with, um, you know, different fun adventures that they can have along the way. Um, but that really worked. One, one other little trick I'll throw out. And it was, you know, I, I had sort of the same sort of pregame jitters that I think we all might get whenever we know that people are coming over. In this case, we were playing online. And my way of kind of handling the pregame jitter, I'd, I'd gone through my process. I had my eight steps. I had all my notes figured out and I knew where we were going to start and all that. But I was like, you know, I just kind of want a little more. And I was like, well, I have four characters tonight. I have four players, four characters. I want to write down like one thing that will either happen with each of the characters or that will pull them in or that, you know, something that they'll see. So like one of them was that one of the dwarves is going to look at the magic stone that, that Durham, the wizard has, which he uses in his rifle. Like Durham is a, he's, he's, he's got, he's got magic guns. Right. And he just picked up this new lightning stone. And I was like, I'm going to give that stone a little bit of a story that the Fisher dwarf will tell him on the way. And, you know, for, for, for Bruno, my, my wife's barbarian, who is kind of infatuated with cults, I'm like, I'm going to definitely have like the cult of Chernobog and, and information about the cult of Chernobog that she would know because she has this, she actually has a copy of Demon Cults and Secret Societies, which is a Cobalt Press book, but she's got the in-game version of this book that's, you know, this, this book full of all the different cults in the area. And it would talk about the cult of Chernobog. So I did that for like each of the characters, one, one character, Winasia. You know, she she comes from the daughters of Paranelia far to the south, which are like these, you know, um, what are they like Amazon warrior types? And I said it would be interesting that the the, the Holdramos, um, who's kind of a female dominated society, would know them and would know, you know, have this immediate sort of bond with her. So when she walks in, they won't give the group a bunch of because they're talking to her, right? She's and she's 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 something. So I did that for each of the characters that made me feel good. Like having just one bullet per character of like, this is a, this is a little hook, a little seed, a little thing I'm going to yank on. That's going to, that's going to, you know, tie directly to that character. And I'm going to do one of these in each of the, you know, one of these for each of the characters in the session. And that, that helped me with my pregame, my pregame jitters. Um, you know what I so did? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, um, Partially inspired by the patented Sly Flourish, put things on on various three by five index card strategies. Yeah, I was that was original Lazy Dungeon Master, right? Uh, Old school. Co- combined with um, recently reading, oh, what was the the whatever Robin Laws's sort of sequel to? Yeah. Oh, was. did he? 
Well, he did Hamlet's Hit Points. Is that what right. you're talking about? No, he did a sequel uh, sort of that's, uh, was it Beating the Story maybe? Yeah, and I don't think I read that one. Story. Yeah, so we did a, a book club on that a, a, a few months ago. Uh, and I had this idea, like thinking about scenes, I had this idea of like, well, if, I'm, if I should have a good story, if I should have certain scenes in certain proportions, I'm going to write down the, just the names of these scenes. Yeah. Just generic names, not specific like scenes that are going to take Like details, names. yeah. But no, no details, just like right, a right. combat scene, a social scene, whatever, right? Uh, uh, and, and have them on my, my table on the left-hand side. And every time I have one of those scenes, I move it to the right-hand side. And so that is my visual cue. I see all the stuff still on the left-hand side. Oh, I need to bring some of this more in. Uh, I quickly abandoned that <laughs> because <laughs> remembering all of those scenes and trying to make it work with the narrative yeah. and what the characters yeah. were doing was a huge pain in the butt. But then I, I evolved it and I just got a three by five index card uh, with each of my each of the PCs names on it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and every time their story has a bit of a spotlight moment. I move yeah. it from the left to the right. And that yeah. I have used and maintained. And it does those exact same things. So even when I'm on, off the cuff, I'm like, okay, I don't need to do more to, to further the twins' narrative. They've had a bunch of time. And they're already on the right. I need to focus on the paladin's story a little bit more uh, because he's been kind of neglected. Uh, and so that's been working really well. And it has a similar effect to what you were doing, although you did it, you planned it out ahead of time, which... I have often. I didn't. Well, the thing is, I I didn't really plan anything. I just sort of jotted a note to myself of like a a a a, a, a thing. It could be a piece of lore. It could be just just one hook that sort of tied them to whatever you know the direction they're going. And in this case, like one of them didn't happen because they didn't get far enough, right? They don't. They didn't. They didn't sort of reach that 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 moment. Um, but it's still that idea. Like you just want to have that one hook in mind that that um you know, is something that will happen, you know, something that will happen to, to everybody. It's like, I'm looking at him right now. And like one of the characters is a, uh, a rogue named HB who is kind of like setting up his own weird, you know, legal business in Zobek. And he realized that other towns are starting to become franchises of the one that he set up. And, you know, through God knows what weird magic, it's starting to spread further than he's traveling. And they refer to him as the founder. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if somebody recognized him in this way off town? And like, are you the founder? And he would like make his head explode. Right. It's just something like that. You know, yeah. just just one little one little thing that just grabs a thing that he's got and asks a question like, how the hell did they know he was the founder? Like how did that information get all the way up here in the North? And sometimes I've made it really big things and sometimes it's just moments like that, but then I'll I'll move the card over. This largely came out of some feedback from my previous campaign where several players felt like one of the PCs felt like the main character of the campaign through the whole thing. And I'm like, Oh, then I probably didn't spread out the spotlight nearly enough. Uh, and yeah. so I'm trying to do better at that. But Your time ran out a while ago, but I don't know if you have more to say. No, I'm done. Oh, okay. It's all, well, all good. Things are, things, are, things, are, things are moving swimmingly. So Empire of the Ghouls going swimmingly. Um, I am curious to hear about the Spelljammer campaign at some point, but we don't need to deal sure, with that yeah. at the moment. Um, I'm just curious. I, know- I'll, I will, if I can give, I'll give, I'll give like a two minute quick okay. th- yeah quick my quick review it is one of the easiest adventures i've ever run 
like the style of that adventure. And I'm, I'm noticing this more. I noticed a lot with like uh, Kelsey's work at Arcane Library, which I hadn't been really familiar with. And now I'm much more familiar with after the success of the Shadow Dark RPG and stuff like that. But she has a big library of, of adventures that these adventures that are really, really written to make it easy for you to run, which mostly is cut out the words. And I'll tell you, the juxtaposition between Light of Xeraxis and Scarlet Citadel cannot be like more stark in just how much easier it is for me to prep my Light of Xeraxis game. It's very episodic as well. The, and the episodic nature works, works well, but it's just brief, right? Like it covers a lot of ground without a lot of words. And that is, you know, it's something that, that I really, I really commend. I'm, I'm still not happy with the Spelljammer box set as a product overall. Um, because I think it could have gotten a lot more service if it was a campaign guide instead of, instead of like an, an adventure and a monster book and, and, you know, a bunch of pages of, of spaceships and, um, but not how to fly them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but the adventure, you know, just looking at it as the light of Xeraxis as an adventure, it is a really, really well written adventure. Um, that, you know, when I, I, I look at like adventures that make it easy for me to run and it's, it's very high on the list. So I'll just say that my group is having a good time with it. I'm having a good time with it. Yeah, that's good. I know, I know, um, people who were familiar with Spelljammer were concerned that the adventure didn't feel like classic Spelljammer. So I was curious in terms of, yeah, that. I don't know what, I don't know what classic, I've never played Spelljammer, so I don't know what classic Spelljammer feels like, but there's lots of spaceships. There's lots of crazy monsters. There's lots of, you know, the, the weird kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm treating it like Flash Gordon, right? Which is, I think, the inspiration behind it. Sure. And, and yeah, so that, I mean, there's lots of like battles on ships where people are flying around in air bubbles and floating off into space accidentally and space whales and, okay. you know, very high science fantasy and space kind of stuff. And, and It is and, one of yeah. the things on my list of, I don't know if my main adult group will get to it, but... I could easily pull out and run, I think with my kids and they would have a, yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. It's also pretty short. I think you can get through it. I think you get through it pretty quickly. Awesome. All right. Well, let's transition. Uh, before we let Sam have his turn, uh, I want to remind people that if you want to support the Tome Show, you can go over to patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Um, you know, throw us a dollar a month or whatever, and that helps me uh, pay for all these software upgrades and, and things that I've uh, recently tried to do to fix our audio after the, um, the bad audio issues um, and, and pay the bills and um, – you know, occasionally pay for shipping to send things to, to Sam and Tracy so that uh, all the work that they do gets recognized. So, all right, Sam, not only do I appreciate you, but it is your turn to talk. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, I have two active games going, which I mentioned uh, last week. I have a game of uh, fourth edition D&D, and I have a game of Castles and Crusades. Uh, both of them are going swimmingly. Um, and uh, I, one of the things that it's doing to run both of those for me is it's reminding me of... Um, the differences between running a sort of a heavy tactical game and a very light on the rules game. Um, and the thing about that is that that's not a complaint. I'm, I'm not saying that as, as something where, Oh, you know, it's, it's reminding me of the stark differences and which one I like better or anything like that. It's more about um, just the mind shift that has to occur to run a game 
in a certain style like that. And uh, at the same time, both of these games are online. And it's been a long time since I've run a game in person, which is a little bit sad to me because I love running games in person. But, you know, since the pandemic, I haven't um, run. And I ran games online before the pandemic. That was never a problem for me, but I always sort of had it supplemented with some in-person sessions. At least once or twice a month, I would have an in-person session. Um, And then the pandemic hit and... You know, just not, it couldn't happen. So, and, and, and I have never gone back to, and have not yet, I should say, gone back to uh, being able to play in person. So, um, so I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sort of at the same time as I'm exploring the differences or being reminded, maybe I should say, of the differences between running this sort of heavy tactical game, fourth edition, and running a very light game, Castles and Crusades. Uh, I'm also reminded of the tools that we have available to us and how they help us or maybe hinder our prep. And so I'm trying to stay positive and I'm trying to, um, you know, uh, just um, try to find things that are good about virtual games because I know that I'm not going to get back to in-person gaming for a while still. Um, just different medical issues and different conditions and different things, uh, different situations that are happening. I'm not going to be able to get an in-person group for a while. So, so one of the things I wanted, I wanted to talk about is that in my fourth edition game, I'm using Foundry VTT and um, Foundry has this really great uh, feature that's they they call it the journal feature and basically you can set up a journal your players can set up a journal and they can take their notes right on the foundry in in the system so that it's always there and then they can decide if they're the only ones that can see it or if they make it public and things like that but the the dm the gm can also do that and so as a result of that you know the the I can make as part of my prep taking these notes or transcribing notes or just jotting down little notes, plus throw an image in there. And then if I need to, I can show that to my players or I don't have to. And it makes it really easy. Whereas, you know, something that I would normally be, if I was around a table, I would show them an actual picture or I would actually read the words to them or I would hand them, you know, a crumpled up piece of paper that had the note that they found on it or something like that. Um, in this way, I can do that visually for them. And it's not that Foundry is the only VTT that does that. I know they all, all of them do that, right? Even Albear has a way to put a little post-it and show, you know, the, the players, right? So even the, even the most basic in, in VTTs. But I'm really loving the one uh, that's in Foundry because you can also pin it to a particular location so that as the DM or as the GM, I don't forget where it is now i know that fantasy grounds lets you do that too but i found fantasy grounds not as it's a little bit unwieldy uh, in that way uh, to move around the screen and find those pins whereas in foundry it's it's not a problem at all for me um that's totally about preference i'm not trying to knock fantasy grounds um so i just wanted to like say that and talk about how that actually enhances my game in a way that, you know, I wasn't really expecting because I was thinking, ah, I don't have to worry about that journaling feature because I'm not really concerned about it. But 
I'm running this fourth edition game as kind of an open sandbox kind of game. And so basically what I'm doing is presenting to them situations in NPCs and they're talking to NPCs and hearing stories and then they go do things and they find other clues to other conspiracies or cult activity or, you know, traitors or spies and things like that. And then they end up, you know, talking to other other NPCs and then they make a plan for what they want to do. Um, but it's not, I'm not running a, you know, one to 30 campaign where, you know, it's okay, well, we're doing this now. The next thing is this, and then we're going to do this. And then your next thing is this, and then you have to go do this thing. And then you, it's more like, okay, well, you heard these rumors or you're, you're going to investigate this thing and now you're investigating it and you find all these clues and they're, we're about in session seven and they're about to finish up their kind of first major I would call it an arc, right? They're finishing up their first sort of major story point. And it's really that they've come to this point where they now know all the major players in the area where they're, where they're in, and they know a bunch of the NPCs there, and they can start to categorize them in their own minds about whether that person is trustworthy or not, whether that person is secretly a powerful wizard or not, because they had suspicions about one of the NPCs very early on that he was actually a powerful wizard and hiding it um, and, and things like that. And, the the beauty of this is they can put that all in a journal and they can note, oh, this character thinks that person is not trustworthy because of this. Or this person thinks that character is not trustworthy, but not because they're necessarily lying, but because they're hiding how much power they actually have or they're hiding their real thoughts because they don't want them known. Or, you know, they're, they're not – it's not that we think they're going to backstab us, but we think they know more than they do. And – I can see those notes and they can see those notes and we actually talk about them at the beginning of the session. And then also when I presented them something new, because in the last session they had this big combat. It was kind of the crescendo of the, of the whole three or four session arc. And they fought one of the kind of minor villains that they've been hearing about and trying to combat. And, um, they found a note on this person and it opened up some information for them. But what they also found in the lair was the idiot card from the deck of many things. So in fourth edition, you know, the deck of many things is more, it's a little bit different than in other editions. It's not that it doesn't do major things because it can, but also a lot of the cards of the deck of many things, if they're used individually because of the backstory that's put onto the deck, in, based on what's happening in 4th edition, if you use a single card, you can throw it down and activate it, and it can actually change the environment, it can change the terrain that's happening, it can change the way that certain powers and certain types of powers are used, and it can make a really dynamic, interesting effect. So you're using not just the the deck of many things as presented in like the DMG or wherever it's at, but from, uh, was it, is that Madness at Gardmore Abbey? It was Madness at Garmore Abbey, yeah. yeah. So, so the thing is, they 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 chose to start on the um, western side of the Nintir Vale, so they are near Winterhaven and near the Keep on the Shadowfell, and so they're learning all of those personalities and issues that are happening. But they're also relatively close to Gardmore Abbey, even though they're only second level right now, so they're not anywhere close to being able to go do anything about it. Um, but uh, they've already met one of the collectors, which they don't know the person. So. so. If anybody's, if any of my players are listening, ignore, <laughs> ignore this. Uh, they they don't know, uh, they don't know uh, which one of the people that they met is a collector. 
um, but they've just now sort of realized what they have. And one of the people that they met up with is uh, Sir Oakley, who is the paladin in in Manus at Garmore Abbey, and he's trying to get the cards put away. Like he wants to get rid of them. He wants nobody. He doesn't want them to fall into evil hands. And so the players were kind of joking around, and one of them was like, "Well, because I was asking them, do you want to leave the card?" Because they had said, you know, be careful if you go into the keep or if you go into a place where there's a rift to the Shadowfell, because the card might cause you to be pulled toward that portal, because the card is an agent of chaos, right, um, itself. So even though you think you can use the card and, and you control it and you kind of own it, quote-unquote own it, it's a it's an agent of chaos, and it is a sort of partially sentient item. So if you get too close to something and it decides it wants to go there, it's going to take you there and you won't really have a choice. So either it will be ripped out of your hand or you'll go with it. And so be careful if you take it to any sort of power source. If there's a point power source, like a teleportation circle or a rift or, you know, cause they've heard about the keep that there is something happening right in the, in the keep. Um, so they were told, be careful about that. And so then the question was, well, do we want to leave this card here or do we want to take it because it might cause us problems when we get there? Right. And so they were kind of joking around and they said, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll just sell it. I don't know. What do you think something like this is worth? And one of them was like, well, I don't know. It'd be nice to have about 10,000 gold pieces. And Sir Oakley said, I can arrange to get you 10,000 gold pieces. And then they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Hold on. So you're telling me you'd pay me $10,000 for this card? And he said, yes, I can have that to you tomorrow morning. And they were like oh, maybe this thing is way more powerful than we thought. Like, now they're starting to question it, right? Now it's like, oh, wait, this isn't just some, like, card. Because they found the idiot card. They thought it was, like, a play on words, and that it was just kind of a joking thing. And, okay, it makes you kind of dumb because it confuses you, whatever. But now it's like, okay, well, here's this Paladin of Bahamut, and he's saying he wants to buy that card from us for 10. And their second level, like, they've maybe seen, you know, a couple hundred gold pieces, like, Who's got 10,000 gold pieces to spend on this? So then they started questioning, oh, well, maybe we don't. So then they said, well, maybe let us think about it. And he said, that offer expires, you know, tonight. Like, you you need to make that decision. And you know, so when I see you first thing in the morning, you need to tell me. And they were like, oh. And then they started talking about, well, maybe it's worth more. Maybe we can get more. And so now it, now it's a thing, right? So now they understand at least that they have something that has a lot of power. They don't know if he's the collector. I'm not saying whether he's the collector. They they do know that he, uh, the way I set it up, he is an old paladin who used to be in an adventuring party with Lord Padraig, who is the Lord Mayor of Winterhaven, and with a couple of other people that they've met, a couple other NPCs. Valthrun is one of them. Um, who He's the old sort of crazy, like, sage in Winterhaven, right? And so they're kind of learning, oh, these guys were an adventuring party. So they kind of know, maybe they have more gold than we thought they had. Like, they kind of know what's going on. So, so they started having this really cool interaction with all these different NPCs who they didn't know before. They rescued... Um, an NPC. So there's there's two elves in 
in uh, in in Winter Haven. There's Delfina Moonglow, who is the sort of she she runs this she sort of sells flowers. But the way I have it, she lives out in the forest outside of town, and she tends this meadow and grows these really beautiful elven flowers. She brings them to town, and she she knows everybody. She's really nice. And then there's Ninaran, and Ninaran. So spoilers, but I mean this thing was published more than ten years ago, so whatever. Um, Ninaran like. Um, it is first of all it was a female in the original she's a female elf and she was um a trader she she was basically working for Calorel and the thing is though in in so in my setup what happened was i made i made Ninaran male and i made him the brother of Delphina Moon Jim and so uh he was being forced to do to spy on the town by Calorel to save his sister because they 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 had they found him doing something wrong and they used it to blackmail him and then they were like well now you can't leave he based they basically got him into the gang right and then they said well you can't leave because if you try to leave the gang and you try to tell on us and tell our secrets we're going to kill your sister and we know that she's the only person that you so he's been like spying on everybody trying to not do the things that are really really bad but also he's trying to save his sister's life so the group figured this whole thing out like i mean this was over several sessions right so the group figured this out and they didn't tell on him they basically made a deal with him that if he gave them information they wouldn't tell anybody in town that he had been spying on them and they would let him continue to protect his sister and so there's a whole lot of characterization going on that's just really really great so for anybody who ever said fourth edition has no role playing f off but anyway so that's what's going on and the thing is that that's a lot of information that's a lot of things to keep track of and even though we play weekly you know when you suddenly have like a whole bunch of npcs because it's a whole new town they're introduced to there's a whole bunch of npcs they need to keep track of all those and so the journaling the way that you do journal entries in Foundry is really, it's really, really great. I just love it. So I just wanted to say something really positive about that because normally I'm, I'm very much a, even though I'm comfortable with online stuff and I'm, you know, I'm relatively tech savvy, so I don't really have like any problems with it. I just would prefer to play in person, but there are some things, there are some benefits to having something online. Right. Aside from like the really cool maps and, and everything that you can get nowadays that uh, that are easy to load up into a system like that, um, that are necessarily sometimes harder to get on your table. But, you know, uh, it's just it's a lot of fun. So I don't know. I don't know how much time I have left, but um, I'm just sort of, you know. Alarm just went off a few seconds ago. OK. Yeah. So so there you go. So that's what's happening. So this is, you know, Sandbox, Nintir Vale. They've got a whole bunch of leads to other things. I have no idea what they're going to do next. They're probably going to go to the keep and try to wipe out Calorel, but they're going to find some surprises in there because I'm not following, you know, that adventure the way it's written, right? Because who does? But, you know, there's some things there that they're going to learn. And of course, because I'm now weaving in the deck of many things, and that means I'm also I'm also weaving in some Temple of the Yellow Skull things. I'm weaving in some of the Slaying Stone things that are all over there uh, plus um the keep that's down by the chaos scar right all that stuff was published in dungeon magazine not in actual you know paper publications so a lot of that's in there too because they're on the western side of the veil but if they decide to go i think they're going to go to thunderspire um not to i'm not going to run that module the way it is either but they they have heard of a lot of different things that are going on there and one of them is a uh, a goliath who is a storm warden 
And so he's really interested in if I go to the top of Thunderspire Peak, am I going to what am I going to find out about the storms that are constantly covering Thunderspire Peak? Because that's what part of his he was born under an omen and there's all these things. So there's a lot of story going on and it's it's really fun to be back in the veil and I'm super happy about it. So I will end now without been, going too I've far. I've been playing around. Um, we've we've talked about the Ninja Veil before, and that's come with some inspiration. And I've been um, re-inspired to reintegrate some some Ninja Veil lore into my campaign that I can talk a little bit about. I have a I have a player who's particularly fascinated by um, by the Raven Queen. Uh, but doesn't but but is an an anti fourth edition person and doesn't mm-hmm. recognize that the specific version of the Raven Queen that she really likes is the fourth edition Raven Queen yeah. and the fifth edition <laughs> Raven Queen is different. Yeah. Um, and so I I have uh, I have been sneaking some Nintir Vale fourth edition sort of lore uh, into her story as a as a Raven Queen devotee. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. Two of my favorite things about fourth edition were the two new deities, right? Torog the God of the Underdark, mm-hmm. and the Raven Queen, right? And so they, of course, play heavily in the forces that are acting upon the Veil, right? So uh, the Keep on the Shadowfell isn't actually um, protecting a Shadowfell rift. It's protecting a rift that could accidentally lead to Torog's prison being removed, and he could come out of the Underdark. So, yeah. So it's, so, a, little, it's a little bit of a, of a Therizden-style story. A little bit, but not... Not exactly. I mean, there is a little bit of Therizden in Torog, just the way that they wrote him. It's just that he's not, he's definitely not as powerful as the all seeing eye, right? But he's, you know, he is a chained god. He's just not the chained god, which Therizden still exists, right? And so he's still the chained god. And in fact, if you were to read the fourth edition novels way back when, the, um, the, the, what is it? The Abyssal Plague. The Abyssal Plague is actually happening because there's something about the the Living Gate that got corrupted and was part of entrapping Therizden and the weird, like, oozy, plague-driven blood, silver ooze actually has gotten some of its power from Therizden because now it's... It had what got trapped with him in his little demiplane entrapment, and has can now leak out, and he can't. He still can't get out, but it leaked out, and that's what started causing the abyssal plague, according to the to the novels, right? So yeah, so there's there's a little bit of everything going on there. That's the benefit or the 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 ability to do that happens because I know a lot about the Intervale, but mm-hmm. that's part of the reason to run a sandbox game, right? Is right. that if they start questioning other things, I can always throw in, oh, well, you know, here's this. Because one of the one of the people is all, one of the players is also really interested in Narathan lore, right? And mm-hmm. so at some point he's going to run across, you know, the threefold crown, which is the symbol of the Empire of Narath and one of its descendants possibly, or someone who says they are. And so then you get now you have all this intrigue going on because there are other powers that are taking over and that want to rule the place, and they're not Narathan. So it, yeah. it only anyway. just occurred to me: um, is the Empire of Narath connected to uh, the Raven Queen? In what way? Like, is, is is she was she a part of the the Empire at some point? Is she instrumental in its formation? 
No, no, in, in no, my, in, in, no. Orcus was actually instrumental in its. It, well, well, so Orcus was instrumental in its in its in one of the em, emperors' rise to power, Emperor Magroth. When it actually went from being kingdoms to being an empire, it's because he made a deal with Orcus and then rose up. So she's related in that way because, of course, she opposes Orcus in everything. Sure, but it occurred to me um, because one of the bits of lore that I found integrating the Raven Queen more into my Descent into Avernus game, uh, which I'll talk more about in a bit, um, mm-hmm. is that her, at some point, the lore was established that her original name was Nera. And it occurred to me, it doesn't take much to turn Nera into, you know, her right. land of Narath or whatever, but apparently yeah. not. Just coincidence. Yeah, there's, and uh, you, there's a lot of connections there that were never quite solidified, like the idea of, you know, there was the one Eladrin, um empress right that that became that that was the the king of of blossoms right or the king of blooms or whatever who's a he's a fey lord in the in the fey wild he actually gave his or allowed his daughter to marry the emperor and she became the empress and she's like very much beloved she was such a good empress that some of her her likeness or her profile is on a lot of the narathan coins mm-hmm. and it's possible she was related to the original conception of the Raven Queen because right. there is a story there about the Raven Queen having been a, a mortal, right. a, a mortal, but with some sort of elven lineage at some point. Like it, it's a little bit dirty uh, because it never really got spelled out. Well, that, that's There's, that's that is yeah. both the the beauty and the right. frustration yeah. of of the Nintir Vale, right? Is that. Yeah. Exactly. You have, you have a lot of kernels of story, but you get to sort you yeah. have to sort of figure out what it all means. Right. And part of that's by design. Yes. And and part of it is because it just was such a short-lived setting, right? right? That they they maybe were starting to close some of those loops because when you look at some of the later books, they do start to kind of start to cycle back and say, "Oh, well, here's this little Easter egg that tells you about what was really going on with that thing that we mentioned, you know, 10 books ago." Um, but yeah, they never quite got to, you know. Right. They never got to connect all of their loose okay. ends. Mike, did you have any comments or questions for Sam? Uh, no, I just, the the whole topic of uh, comparing and contrasting in person games to online games is fascinating to me, and I'm I'm doing it. Like it was so wild, you know. It was so wild to play in-person games exclusively for like 15 years straight, and then suddenly play two years of online play exclusively and then go back to in person. And now it's a mix and now it's even a mix for some groups where like I had a, 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 you know, this is the new world I guess we live in where like we've been playing in person and then somebody got COVID and then we're playing online until they get over it. And you know, a few weeks have passed and then we'll get back to in person again. And I remember this one little funny anecdote was when I went back to in person play and I'm like, what the hell are we supposed to do with maps? Like, what am I supposed to do about a map? I have no idea. Like, how how the hell did I do this before? Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine. Like, now it's just like, oh, I'm sharing maps. Right? I'm sharing maps. I'm doing. Right. I got. I got. You know, the the the. I got the 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 fog of war going. It's easy, mm-hmm. right? Like, I go grab a Dyson map yeah. and I'm ready in 12 seconds. And right. then it's like in person. I'm like, what? I'm supposed to draw it? Like, yeah. what? I got barbarian. <laughs> what is that? Where's the old SX map I used to what have? What is that? Right. Ago. I had to like. And yeah, so yeah. that whole thing is just like there were parts of my brain that just plain broke. Right. 90% of the time, if I'm running theater of the mind, it's because I didn't want to take the time to draw a map. 
Right. But yeah. like I got right. so used to like for every game, Numenera games and everything, I got mm -hmm. so used to like I grab a Dyson map, I throw it in Owlbear, I throw it in Fog of War and I'm ready to mm -hmm. go. And it would take like I could it was so fast I could like do it minutes. during a game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I, I didn't even yeah. bother to prep it. I would just do it during a game. Yep. Yeah. And then I'm like, now what? Right. Like now yeah. I have to like you know, so the kind of prep for in-person yeah. game. Now I'm saying of Dwarven Forge stuff because I'm like, God, right. you know, I'm like, damn Here's it. If people are coming over to my house, we're using Dwarven Forge. <laughs> right. right. Like I didn't, I didn't buy, I didn't spend, you know, the price yeah. of a car on terrain to not use it. Here's what's funny about that. Way back in 2009, I played a lot online. I was in grad school. I played every week at the, at the college's uh, games club, but I also played a lot online because I met a bunch of people on Twitter. Right. So like, yeah. I don't know if you remember Simon uh, Matthew, Simat on Twitter, like him yeah. and I met a long time ago on Twitter. I mean, I've never met him in person per se, like in face to face, but we've played games online together for like years. And I met him back in 2009. I was running a game and I was running it in map tools and I was trying D20 Pro. And like, there's like all these really early VTTs that were really, you talk about like user friendliness now with VTTs. It's like world, it's worlds apart. Right. And, but back then it was, it's really funny because it was such a, a much more of a hassle to, okay, now I got to get a map. I have to digitize it. I have to draw something. I have to put something on here. I got to figure out fog. I got to do all <laughs> so these ridiculous. things. And it was so tough because there weren't just, you couldn't just Google, you know, map of a cavern. Right. And like, like if I, like I, I follow a couple, I have a couple of Patreon accounts where I follow where they produce really, really nice maps, you know, and it's like, those are like, you know, and, and you could, you could go online right now and you could just Google something, just a little bit of, of description and you can find like 10 maps right away. Right. right? Or you could just go to like you're mentioning Dyson. Just go to Dyson's page, yeah. and there's just he's got like right, he's years got 1200 of maps. Right. right for free to use and right. easy. You know, and that, good, it's good all looking right maps. there, and it's like a bam, right? Yeah. And it's so quick now. Whereas now in person, it's like okay, yeah. So I have I still have a lot of my maps stuff. I have a lot of dungeon tiles. I have a lot of like Paizo flip maps. I have I have lots of vinyl maps that you roll out. I have a blank chessex map you can draw on. Like I have all that stuff. But it's now the more difficult to plan type of game, right? Whereas online, it's just like that just became part of the workflow. It became part of what we did. And I sort of, because I've been playing on VTT since like 2007, 2008, even before that actually, um, but just not as much. But like I've seen all this evolution of all these tools and all of the different user-friendly features and the, all that. And it's amazing, yeah. It is just, it's amazing what we can do now. So it's flipped. It's harder for me to prep an in-person game right now. Yeah, but then I, I like, I definitely like in-person games more. But, like the right. but body I, language I and communication. Still, and, right. yeah. The communication, the interaction between yeah. people at the table is so much better in an in-person yeah. game though. Yeah. Still, even if you have very attentive players, even if you're all, you all have video and you like all that, you're, nobody's having any technical difficulties, it's still much better in person. Yeah. It just and is. I'm, I'm still like, you know, I've got one boar miniature and I need two. And I'm like, I have 1400 miniatures <laughs> at least. I've got top, huge Tupperware bins filled with miniatures and I don't have the one extra bore I need, but online I can hold down the control key and make 12 uh, Valors, yeah. right? Like I, you know, I can yep. pick your most expensive mini and I can make 10 copies in 30 seconds. Yep. It's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, I went to the, to the Habitat for Humanity restore recently and bought a whole like dresser 
and then and then got out my table saw and cut out little dividers and I filled it just with minis. And I still yeah. have to be like, I, I don't know, I don't have this mini, so we're gonna pretend this ogre is the the thing right. we're fighting, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what led me to get rid of all my minis. Like I had like more than fifteen, sixteen hundred minis. Minis. I got rid of them all and I went to tokens. Right. Because it's yeah. easy to just yeah. start gathering tokens, and I, I have yeah. like ten of yeah. everything. I, I'm just I'm in I'm in sunk cost right I'm in deep yeah, in the yeah, sunk yeah. cost fallacy, yeah. fallacy where yeah. I'm like no I got these minis yeah. I got this Wormforge reusing it and I like them like I really do enjoy yeah yeah, yeah. I and, really it, do it, enjoy and, using and honestly them, if I still, still if, if I had the ability to play in person as much as I have the ability to play online I would probably have kept them yeah right? I, or I would have started collecting again somebody once upon a time several years ago convinced me to invest more in the flat plastic mini market uh mm-hmm. i believe that was my sure. day yeah uh, probably me. Yeah. i've had back, lots of solutions over the years <laughs> well but this was back when you had a specific curated collection yeah right mm-hmm. yeah from uh, flat yeah. plastic minis sure yeah that was my that was my uh original and then i've gotten into a few other companies uh and, and back some and so i've got a bunch of those i don't buy um i, I still buy minis but i don't buy the pre-painted plastic minis from WizKids that I, in the numbers that I used to buy, but I've got a whole binder full of, of flat ones and a, and a, yeah. and a Kickstarter with several hundred more on the, on its way sometime soon. So I think it's on the yeah. boat from China right now. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, um, we're going to transition now and I'll let people know if you want to talk to all of us, you can find the Tome Show social media. We are on discord. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. Um, so you can find us in, in those various places. There's an, uh, 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 a nice community on our Discord. We're, we're not so big that it's hard to follow, but it's big enough that you can have a good conversation. And Sam has put it in the chat for those of you uh, in the stream. So come and join us on Discord. Now it is my turn. I should suppose, in fairness, I should start the timer for myself. So I am still running my Descent into Avernus game. Um, I like the Blood War, and I like Rampaging Through Hell, and we're having a fun time doing it. I think since the last time we chatted, they had left Mad Maggie's uh, Fort Knucklebone. Um, they'd have the they'd done the they did the Dreamscape thing, and one of the things that I had modified in the Dreamscape is in between each of the Lulu's dreams, I had them have a dream as well and so we got into some of their backstory or in some cases um i did some interest like the 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 shatterkai follower of the assassin who follows the raven queen right um shatterkai the idea is that they sort of reincarnate over and over again and there is a legend that if you follow the the reincarnations of the shatterkai far back enough there they were formed out of the soul of the raven queen herself when she did the ritual to become uh, a goddess right so like yeah, her, that's her, really nice yeah I like so that. so yeah. her vision of the past her dream of of her own past was actually the Raven Queen conducting that ritual and her being torn out of out of the Raven Queen's body, her her soul being torn out of the Raven Queen's body, in uh, uh, you know some tower in the Nintir Vale or whatever. Uh, and then I decided, oh, you know what would be interesting? There, so I'm running the the Avernus sort of, um, you know, in the in the book they've got the path of demons, the path of devils, right? Uh, I am running, and then Mike invented the path of. The Hellriders? Is that what yours was? Yeah, I didn't invent it. I mean, I, I, I did invent it, but then I was talking to one of the authors who will remain nameless who said, yeah, that's what we had originally. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. 
so so I am using Evan Tears uh, uh, Avernus as a sandbox concept, and so it starts off with you know, hey, you need to find either Harriman, Olanthius, or Bell in order to figure out where the the palaces that you need to get to the sword and all that, right? Uh, but you but you don't know where any of those people are. But but you do have some people that know how to find things. So you could go visit Red Ruth, or you could go visit Morden Canaan, um, or you could go visit the Mirror of Mephistar, and and those places can help you figure out where things are. And they found out through about these different sources from different places and whatever. And they decided, well, from our physical location on the map, we're closest to the the Tower of Urm and and Morden Canaan. So we'll go there first, as if physical location on the map of the Infinite Plane of Avernus actually matters. Um, and so they they headed off to that, and I threw in a bunch of, um, I don't know, distractions, side quests, what have you. Um, you know, I, I ran some Warlord stuff. Uh, there was a, an adventure called Bitter Rivals that is sort of the tells the tale of the the uh, the fallout between um, Smiler the Defiler, the the Warlord who lost his gang, and Bitter Breath, the Warlord who stole his gang. Um, and so they played through all of that, and they killed off the entire gang. But then Bitter Breath got away at the end. Um, you know, they uh, I've added in a couple of warlords from another uh, supplement that I found that adds a, adds in a handful of warlords. I'm I'm getting to the point now though where I'm going to start backing off on the warlords a little bit just because it was beginning getting a little heavy. Uh, warlordy, and also now they're walking around like, oh yeah, we ran into you know three or four warlords, and you won't be bothered by them anymore because they're just going to wipe out the entire sort of warlord ecology of, of hell uh, one by one. So uh, then we went to the Wandering Emporium, and I've I realized that there's a whole wealth of opportunity through the Wandering Emporium because of um, what are you laughing at? I, I have to tell, I have to share a Wandering Emporium story, but okay. go ahead. Uh, like, like, well, so I realized there's a wealth of opportunity in the Wandering Emporium if you bring in some of the Adventures League campaign. There's a whole, that's sort of the base of operations for the Adventures League stories, and I'm like, oh well, some of that's kind of cool. And so the the NPCs for that adventure uh, when they first got to the Wandering Emporium in the Adventures League, sort of they met them on the road and protected them from a warlord and got them into into Mahadi's camp. And I ran through some of the the those adventures, so they'll. Uh, my vision is that they'll kind of go back to the Wandering Emporium on occasion, and and they've been given hints like this. You know, uh, pay attention to what the the Chosen of Lathander is up to because uh, their mission, their their task is uh, is worthy. You know, is the message that that the one character got from the Raven Queen. Uh, you know, because she's trying to to recover the souls of lost Hellriders. Uh, this this little girl who read the Book of Exalted Deeds back in Kindlekeep and and now has become the chosen of of Lathander, uh, or Ilmater. The chosen of Ilmater is what it was. But um, so so I'm playing around with that, and we did spent a lot of time in the Emporium. Plus, they 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 both got to do this sort of mystery of like, hey, there's somebody in the Emporium who's a, who's a, a mole. There's a leak who's uh, sneaking our information and our, our location to the warlords, and that's why we keep getting attacked. Um, and so they did that, but at the same time, they sort of it was like half a two sessions of that combined with, hey, it's shopping time. We get to go and hang out at the at the Infernal Rapture and, and have a meal and and go get our hair cut. And they they really enjoyed talking to to the barber, who's actually like a, a what is she a copper dragon in disguise who's spying on Tiamat, and that's why she's in Avernus hanging out with the one. So they enjoyed a lot of that, and and. Uh, she's a follower of Bahamut, and that's why she's there doing that. But also, I have a cleric of Bahamut in the party, uh, and so they, we played into that pretty heavily. 
Um, so what's your wandering Emporium story? Um, my players never trusted it. Like they went there and they were just convinced it was going to be awful the whole time. And they didn't want to make any negotiations with anybody. They were like, NPCs are just like handing them. I was like, this is the perfect upward beat in a very downward beat story. And they had been beaten down so much. They didn't trust it to be an upward beat. They're like, here's a fountain that you can drink from and get a full rest. Like, nope, not drinking it. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, here's like treasure that. Oh, nope, not taking the treasure. I don't want anything to do with it. And they like couldn't get out of there fast enough. Yeah, it was, it was really I'm like, I don't know what to do. There's this whole like awesome place. Like, nope, not staying here. Hate it. Yeah, they're, like, no. they're all nice people. My, they my, all thought they were going to get hosed. My players are definitely distrustful um, of the Wandering Emporium. And part of that is 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 meta. Um, I had sort of established uh, I don't know if you remember the character of Vincent Trench from Dra- uh, uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Uh, he's he's a like a private detective in Trollskull Alley. I, I kind of yeah. I don't know if I so but, I don't know if but, I ran him. But he's actually a, a Rakshasa, uh, sort of in disguise as they do. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so right. I I had established. I'm like, well, I know that there's a Rakshasa Mahadi in in uh, Descent into Avernus, and so I had sort of established that. What, back when they were playing that adve- the the Dragon Heist adventure, that Vincent sort of threw threw an offhand comments about his, his you know his brother who's always you know hanging out in hell and doing that whatever right and then Vincent showed up at one point hunting somebody down while they were in El Torel and and mentioned you know his brother and and they the players know that that uh, both that that Vincent Trench is a Rakshasa and that Mahadi is his brother so. A plus B equals C, right? Um, that Mahadi must be a, a Rakshasa as well, uh, and so they figure they they know that Mahadi is a Rakshasa, and so they don't trust him. But the play the characters don't know, so the, so they're still kind of walking that line a little bit, right? Um, they've got a healthy skepticism, but like it all seems to most like he's kind of, but also <laughs> like this is a nice reprieve, <laughs> and he's not horrible to us, so. Um, so it's working out okay for them. Uh, then I decided, so they, then they got to the Tower of Urm uh, and to meet Mordenkainen, there's like the throng of Yugoloths waiting outside of the tower for, for tasks that Mordenkainen hands them. Uh, and th- they have not realized it yet, but um, no, no, they just realized it in the last session. The one character who had the vision of the Raven Queen realized that the ritual that she saw the Raven Queen performing, you know, the, the tower that she was performing the ritual in is also the Tower of Urm that Morden Kanan is using to jump around the plains. Uh, and, and so she's like, oh, wait a minute. Next time we come back here, I need to have a conversation with this guy because there's a whole thing going on that, you know, so, so she's super intrigued by that. Uh, and that's going well. They've also, on a meta level, gotten super intrigued because one of the other characters who didn't have a flashback of their own sort of backstory, um, I decided that the psychic link went through the sentient sword that he's carrying. And the sentient sword he's carrying is their connection to um, the figure that's that's their patron that's sort of guiding them from inside the companion on El Torel that I had decided a long time ago was, was Kaz, the destroyer. Uh, and so the vision that they had from in him, the, they, they all saw him as this completely different person because he was having Kaz's vision, uh, having a fight with this old lich and cutting his arm off and, and you know, <laughs> between the elbow and, and the wrist. Uh, and, and the players are like, oh, 
<laughs> the characters like we don't know what that means, but the players are like are, their minds are being blown. Oh crap, we got the Vecna situation to deal with, uh, and so that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, so uh, and and I've been trying so. I, early on, early like session one of the campaign, I had them find this old rusted sword, uh, and that's the the sword uh, that they can use to communicate with the betrayed, as they know him, who's actually Kaz. Because um, of course, according to Kaz, he's not the betrayer; he's the betrayed. Uh, even though history remembers him the other way. Um, and then, sort of, I'm using it like uh, uh, I've gone to this this well a lot. I use I'm using it like a vestige of divergence from from uh, Exandria, right, or Critical Role, Teldori. Uh, so it sort of levels up. As you, as, but instead of having it level up as the character hits a personal milestone, I'm having it level up as the character who's wielding it sort of follows in the footsteps of Kaz himself, right. So so it's at a at a door, you know relatively low level power level right now but as soon as he betrays somebody important to him it's going to level up uh, he doesn't know that but i keep sort of dangling out this temptation uh to, mm-hmm. to and, and and i particularly want it to be so he's the twin he's a shatter kai as well he's the twin of the of the other shatter kai who's got this whole raven queen thing going on <clears throat> um i mean he's got a raven queen thing going on too but um but they're twins and so i keep trying to like that's the kind of relationship that's the equivalent of Kaz betraying Vecna, right? So I'm trying to throw in some some betrayal there. And the most recent one was I've decided that um, in her dreamscape, vision, whatever, she also got all this information uh, about who the Raven Queen is. Like she knows the Raven Queen's name. She knows where, where the Raven Queen's from uh, and all that kind of stuff. And so now the Raven Queen has given him, the, the twin, this task of I, I need you to go ahead and like take that memory from her. Here's a little bobble that'll that'll do it. Uh, but she can't know that you did it. You can never reveal that it was done. And so I haven't actually told the character that her that, or the player that her character knows this information because the idea will be and then it's going to be stolen from you and you'll never know it again. So now we don't have to worry about the meta situation, right? Um, and so so I'm waiting because it's been two sessions since he was he got this message from the Raven Queen and he, he, he believes it. We've talked about it uh, between sessions and he knows he's waiting for the moment that he can, I think he's waiting for the moment that he can do it, that she, her guard is down and won't notice uh, what mm-hmm. he's doing. And then I figured because it's Shatter Kai and they're all about like, uh, or they have in the past been all about like ritual tattoos and scarification and that kind of stuff that, that like uh, a, a scar, a scar sort of symbol will appear on her forearm when the memory is taken. And that will sort of be a symbol that represents the memory that was that was taken from her, even though she won't have any idea what it is or what it's about. Right. So that that's a that's a, a fun one as well. I'm a little I, I got a little concerned on the way to the Tower of Erm, like getting from Fort Knucklebone to the Tower of Erm was a like four session ordeal. Uh, and then it becomes a bunch of um, the, 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 the sandbox nature of the way um, Eventier set this up is, you know, you go to one of these people, in this case, Morden Kane, and Morden Kane says, yeah, sure, I'll find out the information you want from me. You got to bring me the blood of something really powerful. I don't care what it is, and it's not my job to help you find it. Go away. <laughs> right? 
Uh, and so then it's like, okay, well, where do you go? Well, we know that there's some powerful blood out there. Uh, you know, you could go, you could go to Archon where he's got a, a reliquary with the the blood of, of Tiamat in it, and uh, you could go to Shum, was it Shumath or Shumrath or whatever? That's this big pile of of goo that's actually a transformed pit fiend, and so you can sort of help restore it and get its blood. And then there's a, a in the adventure there's the obelisk, and it's got a, a wizard who's actually a Barlagora in disguise, who's trapped there. And the suggestion was, well, just don't make it a wizard, or don't make it a Barlagora, make it a make it a Baylor uh, who's trapped there and, and will give up some of its blood in, in, in exchange for help or whatever, right? <clears throat> but they've already got this um, fixation, this fascination with Archon anyway, because <clears throat> I've also been layering in, you know, again, we have a, a cleric of Bahamut who's a dragonborn. And I've sort of, been layering in hints um, that um, Archon is actually like his great great uncle. Um, you know, in in Elturel, there was a, a forgotten hero that that slayed a dragon, and I changed the story so that they didn't slay a dragon. They 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 killed the dragon Ashardalon outside of of Elturel that was being ridden by Archon. Uh, and what they didn't don't realize is that that's actually their both of their ancestors. Uh, yeah. In in the tomb, they had like a, an old family heirloom um, for the for the char- the dragonborn character, and that now it, that's a ring of shooting stars that he's carrying now. <clears throat> but it's got like the family crest on it. It's, it's this heirloom that's been missing from the family for for generations. And so I've, I, I'm ty- and and he he's his whole backstory was that he has a brother who's a follower of Tiamat who's betrayed him and whatever. So I'm like, oh, so so what's past is present, right? What's, uh, and so th- this this is a cycle that's been going on in your family for a long time. One follows Bahamut, one follows Tiamat, and you go to war, and eventually one of them wins. So 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 yeah so. They they're 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 interested in Archon, right? And then Archon, as written in the the sandbox thing, they go to Archon, and then Archon sends them to go do another thing, and then another, th- you know. So it's a bunch of little fetch quests uh, in order to eventually come back with the blood and find out where where to go. Um, and so I was, I, and and then throwing in all this extra stuff from the Adventures League, and then throwing in all these other supplemental encounters and, and things I have in between because it's hell, and I don't want it to be like, okay, you leave one location and you end up another location because it's supposed to be dangerous. It's like traveling through the Underdark. Like I don't want to in in like uh, out of the abyss. Like I don't want to really run three weeks of random encounters, but also yeah. the Underdark has to be dangerous. Or else it's not really the Underdark, right? Hell has to be dangerous or else everybody would just go there, right? Uh, <laughs> and so, well. I'm not sure that's true. Well, I don't know how that but, works. but you get the point, right? It yeah, is hell. Right. If it was, if, look, let's be honest. If it wasn't dangerous, somebody would build a freaking resort there and right, a lot of true. people would go there to vacation. Yes, sure. that is true. So so, so it needs to be dangerous. And so I, I like I'm I'm. I think we've been enjoying the side quest, but also I got to a point where it's like, okay, we need to like, we need to move along. And this reminded me of some of what you were talking about during during your section, uh, Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, so so it took him like three or four sessions to get from Fort Knucklebone to the Tower of Urm. And that was a long time. So the time it took them to get from the Tower of Urm to after that, they wanted to go see Red Ruth to sort of confirm some things or see if she knew where to find some blood or whatever. Uh, so the time it took them to get to the Bone Brambles um, would have been fast, except I use the navigation rules where you roll two dice depending on and which dice depends on how familiar they are with where they're going. 
uh, right. and, they, and they happened to get doubles. And so I randomly determined that they went somewhere else, uh, which actually worked out in their favor because they ended up at the at Aldrax's grave. He's the, the Empyrean who's been transformed into a spine devil. Uh, and hmm. in the hilt of his sword is an orb of dragon kind. Uh, but that's one of the options for getting really powerful blood. I mean, Aldrax, if restored to his form, uh, is powerful enough to to give up some of his blood because he's more powerful than a, than a Baylor or a Pit Fiend or whatever, right? Right. Um, and but but he but he's also like, oh great, so you're going to help me. So here's what we need. I need some of Tiamat's blood, and I happen to know that Arkan has some. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're back to like, oh, I guess we got to go to Arkhan, right? Um, so so uh, they're definitely heading that way. And it's a long ways away. So I can justify a lot of like other things happening in between. Um, but I also don't want it to drag too much. Like the last couple of sessions, I went from place to place really fast without a lot of distractions. And then before that, I had a lot of distractions without getting anywhere. Um, and I got to find a sweet spot now that I've sort of, I feel like I've sort of balanced it out a little bit of. of yeah. And, and I also can't have the. That fitting in the Wandering Emporium Adventures League stuff is going to be interesting because I can't just have the Wandering Emporium be everywhere, right? That's not right. how that works. Uh, and, and that they just run into it whenever that wherever they want to. I gave him a in in, in reward for helping Mahadi find the the traitor. I gave him a, a coin that they can flip that mm-hmm. tells them the direction to the Wandering Emporium. Um, but I specifically said that you have to flip it on the soil of Avernus. So they, which means they have to stop the war machine and get out and flip it, which is when I can throw random encounters at them. Because um, otherwise, if you're just barreling along in the war machine, uh, then the only thing that is really a threat is other warlords or flying creatures. Right. So, so anyway, that's where I've been, and my time ran out a while ago. Questions or, or thoughts for me? So I, I really like the idea of when the one PC uses the the bauble to steal the memory from the other that a little scar is created because that just like immediately made me think about, Ooh, like what NPC could they meet that, that, that PC who knows that they had a memory stolen, but doesn't know what was stolen, but knows that that scar signifies that will immediately recognize a bunch of scars on an NPC and know that that NPC had like a ton of stuff Mm memory wise stolen from them like why what did that person know or whatever and, and, and memory is a theme of the of the story anyway i mean the river right. sticks is there and lulu's lost her memory it's a whole thing right right so the other thing the other thing is too like it you could possibly give them some kind of item that um if they donate a memory to the item it could help them with their travel right like mm-hmm. it, it could do something to help them either speed up or make sure they're in the right direction or like if you want to try to do something like that lean more heavily or even now on the memory thing to make that as okay because you can always track that back and say okay well that's the raven queen trying to help you she doesn't have a lot of power in avernus necessarily but she is mm-hmm. allowing you a way to sort of try to manifest some of her power right uh, by doing that right so 
there's all kinds of things you can like play with in terms of memory and you all it's it's really interesting because you only have to do something like two or three times over the course of a whole campaign for the players to when they see it the third time or the fourth time be like oh yeah that's that thing and then they get this really great feeling like oh we know exactly what's going to happen we know how to work this thing and it's a it's a good thing right even if the thing is kind of grim or you know like well yeah somebody has to lose a memory to do this right like that's not necessarily pleasant right you you have you and it can't be like oh i'll lose this really horrible memory no no you got to keep those you have to donate a good memory because those are the ones with enough power to work that magic item or that effect or what you know what i mean so like there's this element of you're losing a tiny tiniest bit of yourself it occurs to me that i could use that a lot so when you go into the when you get to the palace where the where the zerial sword is right um, there's sort of this like the door just opens for good creatures uh, but what if the door only opens for the good creatures if they sacrifice a memory right a, a good memory a positive memory uh, to help power the or or take down the wards on the door that could be fun and interesting too yeah I didn't even tell you about the the I have a, a paladin character who uh, is a well yeah he's a paladin he's a hell rider um, but he try sort of Tested out in his backstories, he tested out and tried out all the different gods and temples uh, in in uh, Elturel before he, you know, took the the cloth or whatever, uh, and decided that he didn't like any of the gods, uh, didn't like organized religion, so he's a paladin without a god. Uh, and then at some point, when they hit level seven, which is two levels ago now, decided to multi-class into warlock, but never told me about it. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, that's a thing because like patrons are a whole. Uh, now he's a hexblade so it's a little bit different Um, so I've decided now they're up another level and he took another level of warlock so I've decided okay the next time he casts Elder's Blast I'm gonna gonna with him right Uh, he's gonna cast Elder's Blast and suddenly like be stunned because he's gonna be going through these visions and every round I'm gonna ask him a single question and I've got sort of like a, a flow chart and depending on the answer to his question, there is one of three possible powerful weapons connected to you know a patron. He he specifically fights with a glaive. Uh Bahamut, uh not Bahamut, Baphomet has uh famously has a has a glaive as a weapon, the heart cleaver. And so maybe maybe Heart Cleaver is actually whispering to him from from across over on the river Styx where Baphomet is and saying, "Hey, come to me, come to me. We'll take out all the devils." You know, uh, that's really funny. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, I multiclassed into warlock. Who do you think your patron <laughs> is? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, he's he's like no. I th- he's like I thought I I sent you something on Discord. Maybe I didn't, and we went and looked, and there's nothing there. So yeah. Uh, Scipio said something in chat. I'm not sure if you saw. He said it could be interesting if an NPC wanted to forget something, right? Like, and so you could actually make that. Well, if they have a magic item that you normally have to give a memory to make it work, you have to give a memory that you don't. Re- that's a good memory. You don't necessarily want to lose it. But maybe there is a quest that will allow them to sort of right. corrupt that thing just a little bit so that it will accept some NPCs bad memory and and they will be able to do something really helpful for the party. Like there's so many ways to play with that. Some forlorn NPC who's hanging out at the edge of the river sticks, like wondering if it's right. worth it to lose all of their memories, to get rid of this one memory. And right. Then they've yeah. got a way to help. Yeah. Cause it's really weird because you know, like the soul coin thing, right. Where you got to pay 
with somebody's soul. Like that's their whole entire being is their soul, right? right. And so it's kind of, it's very grim, right? Like that's a really hefty price to pay, right? Right? Mm-hmm. But memories, like maybe like it feels like it's not as grim, but well, if you have to give a good memory, right? Like you're gonna start losing connections to your good memories and is that gonna change how you see the world and like mm-hmm. is that a way that hell actually manifests itself that to do things you have to give up your good memories and then all you have are these bad memories and that actually starts to shift not that you know fifth edition really relies heavily on alignment but look it's hell it's evil in there so is it shifting some creature that would normally just be sort of neutral and can go you know can can perform good and bad acts regardless like, is it going to shift them to more and more closer to evil because they're giving away their good memories? Like, that's a really interesting way to sort of explore that in a way that gives the party also some, you know, they they have some agency over that and they don't have to completely just destroy something and take its soul mm-hmm. to make that thing work. So, mm-hmm. anyway. I like it. Cool. So, I think it's probably time uh, <laughs> to, to let people go. Scipio is talking about, uh, he says, holding on to the good memories makes hell more painful. Um, <laughs> you know more of what you've lost, but at least you're, you're still yourself, right? Uh, although, right. theoretically, the good memories is, is, is what might, might make hell tolerable uh, because you have hope, right? You know something else can, can exist. There's something else out there. So anyway, we're going to wrap up this episode. These are all great ideas, and I'm going to play around with a lot of these things. Um, but I also need to make sure to give other people spotlight because one of those characters uh, is one of the ones that was the main character, so to speak, in the last campaign. So uh, can't lean too too hard, but I, I still want to give everybody their spotlight. Okay, that is the end of this episode of Behind the DM Screen. Uh, we have been 3DMs helping each other out. You can find me on Twitter. I am at, at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. The Tome Show is at The Tome Show. Um, I am, you can also reach me through email, thetomeshow at gmail.com. Mike, how should people find you? Slyflourish.com. Everything's there. Everything's there. Uh, what about Sam? Uh, Twitter at DM Samuel or DM Samuel at dice.camp on Mastodon. You can also find me on RPGmusings.com. I'm also on Mastodon, but I don't log in nearly as, as often. So. I have been away from social media for quite a while now because I've just been too busy at work. But I, my accounts are still active. Sounds, so I, I will. If, nice. you, if you ping me, I will respond to you eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I, I always check it if I get a, if I get a mention or if I get a, an yep. alert. So. All right. So that's the end of this episode. Say goodbye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.